This is the Green Street News, the environmental health radio show and podcast. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of experts, welcome back. On the subject board today, the Democrats have a plan for plastic pollution. Landfills in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia are full of PFAS chemicals from fracking waste. Coca-Cola is a quiet or even secret sponsor of hundreds of public health events. And finally, a whistleblower report from the EPA from a real whistleblower herself. That's all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Right, Patty Wood, what happened in the environmental health world this week? I have a couple of interesting articles. The first one is from EHN, or Environmental Health News, written by Christina Marusik. The title is 100 Sites in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia Polluted with PFAS from Fracking Waste. Mm-hmm. Waste from fracking wells that used PFAS, commonly known as a forever chemical, has been dumped at dozens of sites across Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia, all of which could face contamination of soil, groundwater, and drinking water as a result. PFAS, which stands for per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, have been used in hydraulic fracturing and other types of oil and gas wells across the U.S. for at least a decade. Exposure to the chemicals, which are also used to make various consumer products non-stick and waterproof, is linked to health problems, including kidney and testicular cancer, liver and thyroid problems, reproductive problems, lower vaccine efficacy in children, and increased risk of birth defects, among others. So these are chemicals that make things slippery, right? Or, or waterproof? That's right. or... Yeah. It actually enables the, the gas and the oil that is coming up out of the shale um, formations underground to come up more easily. You know, it's a very, very useful chemical for a lot of industries, which is why it is so friggin' widespread. Yeah. And all of this could be resolved by just getting our dependency on fossil fuels out of the way. I mean, we've got to go there. Now I'm gonna just continue. A new map developed for EHN, which is Environmental Health News, by Frack Tracker, using public data reveals that waste generated at the eight Pennsylvania fracking wells with documented PFOS use has traveled to at least 97 additional sites for reuse and disposal. Those eight wells generated more than 23 million gallons of liquid waste and 30,390 tons of solid waste between 2012 and 2022 in 10 years. Um, PFOS like Teflon, right, which is PFOS, Mm -hmm. PTFE, are extremely water repellent and sometimes used in fracking fluid to make the chemical mixture more stable and to more efficiently flush the oil and gas out of the ground at high pressure, which I just said. There's also evidence that the chemicals are used during initial drilling and other phases of oil and gas extraction, but companies aren't required to disclose them, so there's no way of knowing how widespread the practice is. This really bothers me because we worked a lot on the fracking issue about, what, sure 10 years ago? Yeah. And the fact is that it was always impossible to know exactly which chemicals were being used in the fracking process. Well, all you have to do is call it a trade secret, and then you're immune from disclosing to the public what it is. You say, I'm sorry, this is proprietary information, and nobody can do anything about it. It's crazy. Right. I want to end with this. Robert Delaney, who was a retired geologist and Superfund specialist, says that the odds are that just as there were spills at the well pads, there have been spills and leaks at disposal sites. Mm -hmm. 
all these places that accepted the waste didn't know that they were dealing mm. with PFAS. Yeah. And the things you do to treat other chemicals doesn't work on PFAS because right. these chemicals never go away. We're going to talk about that later in the program, but let me give a shout out to Frack Tracker. The Frack Tracker organization has done a fantastic job yeah. in supplying yeah. people with accurate information mm -hmm. about what's really going on in the fracking world. Yeah. Those guys and ladies are really fantastic. So yeah. hats off to Frack Tracker. Okay. Okay. What else you got? Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is in the okay. news, in the news, in the environmental health news, which makes it that a little bit different, it's a, it's right? It's suspicious. I suspect, it's suspicious. I suspect something so is coming here. Yeah. It was published in uh, also in environmental health news and written by Brian Benkowski. It is entitled, Coca-Cola's Influence on Public Health Organizations, Conferences, and Events. Hmm. According to a new study from Public Health Nutrition, Coca-Cola is directly influencing public health conferences and events via sponsorships, sometimes undisclosed, that could give the multinational company a say in speaker selections and conference agendas. The study published in the Public Health Nutrition Journal uncovered previously unknown collaborations between Coca-Cola and major health institutions, including the American Academy of Pediatrics the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, the Institute for Excellence in Pediatrics, the Obesity Society, and the American Academy of Family Physicians. Wow, that's quite a lineup that have collaborated with Coca-Cola, right? The findings suggest that Coca-Cola's influence could suppress research and viewpoints unfavorable to the company and its suite of unhealthy products, advance messaging that physical inactivity is the cause of obesity, and bolster its image as science-friendly. Patty, this is how the game is played. I know. This you is know, a game. This is about influencing decision makers and, and even scientists about what's really going on, if only to prevent some presentations from being made, which apparently they're doing at these public health conferences. That's right. But you see, this is a game that's being played with our health and especially our children's health. Big corporations like Coca-Cola are playing games with our children's health. You know, That's they, where I just draw the line. I, I agree, but they see it as a, this is all about making money. Of course. And, you know, increasing the bottom line of, of how much their, their profit's going to be this quarter and next right. quarter and so on. Well, so, so listen, let me continue. Go ahead. The study concluded, the effect of this industry involvement is to expose professionals to the brands and marketing of certain products, including ultra-processed foods and sugar-sweetened beverages, while also allowing the brands to build their image by affiliating with scientific and research communities. <laughs> Hello. Researchers and events that fail to declare conflicts of interest and clearly state their funding sources, quote, obscures corporate influence over what is said and to whom in these events and conferences, the authors said. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The study looked at 239 public and private events. Coca-Cola provided some funding directly or indirectly to 158, including 98 conferences, 21 symposia, 10 lectures, 14 private meetings, one workshop, three webinars, three seminars, three forums, three panels, and a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> okay. Payments for organizers from Coca-Cola range from $2,500 to $100,000 per event. We should have a public health event and ask yes. Coca-Cola for money. That's a fabulous idea. I think they'd probably not be pleased with the agenda that we came up well, with. Well, it's really interesting because, of course, this is coming out at the same time that this new study has come out about ultra-processed foods and people eating ultra-processed foods 
as a mainstay of their diets, mm -hmm. really, and it being linked to early dementia. Uh. I don't know. Okay. Last Boy. one. Okay. Congressional Democrats have a new plan to combat plastic pollution. This was written for Grist uh, okay. by Joseph Winters. As international negotiators began hammering out the details of a global plastics treaty last week, legislators in the United States were busy unveiling a domestic policy to address the plastic pollution crisis. A new bill introduced by four congressional Democrats takes aim at plastic manufacturers in an attempt to reduce the country's reliance on single-use plastics. If passed, the, quote, Protecting Communities from Plastics Act, end quote, would set national targets for reducing plastic production, strengthen protections for communities most affected by plastic-related pollution, and place restrictions on a controversial process known as chemical recycling. The problem is set to compound in the coming years as fossil fuel and petrochemical companies churn out more and more plastic. According to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, plastic waste is on track to nearly triple by 2060, while the International Energy Agency predicts that petrochemicals will become the single largest driver of oil and fracked gas demand by mid-century. This makes no sense to me, because on the one hand, we've got Shell building this gigantic ethylene cracker plant in, you know, outside of Pittsburgh, and there, it's going to be used to make single-use plastic. So on the one hand, you've got the government, or at least a couple of uh, representatives, right? mm -hmm. putting forward you know, legislation that's trying to limit it. And at the same time, you've got companies building these brand new... I mean, they must right. know well, something listen, we don't know. Listen, listen, like listen, though. They're controlling the politicians. Go but ahead. they are actually, they are addressing that. By 2027, the new bill says federal reg regulators should set a nationwide target to reduce the amount of single-use plastic packaging and foodware that can be made and sold in the U.S., this target would aim for at least a 25% reduction below 2024 values by 2032. Authors of the bill stressed that it would also address an environmental inequities from petrochemical facilities, which tend to be cited near low-income communities and communities of color. One predominantly black region of Louisiana has become so saturated with petrochemical plants and their toxic pollution that it has been dubbed Cancer Alley. Building on a previously introduced bill called the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act, the new legislation would implement a temporary pause on new plastic production facilities pending a comprehensive assessment of the industry's environmental justice impacts. After that, the new bill would restrict new or expanded facilities from going up within five miles of people's homes, schools, healthcare facilities, and a number of other community spaces. The legislation also seeks to exclude so-called chemical recycling, this is really important to me because it sounds great. Yeah. Chemical recycling, right? right? A process that most often involves melting discarded plastic into fuel and then incinerating it. Right. From an environment yeah. from the Environmental Protection Agency's National Recycling Strategy, but environmental advocates say chemical recycling is an industry shell game meant to keep single-use plastics in production. Well, given the political power of the oil and gas industry, Let's see where the legislation yeah, goes. Right, I don't right, have, right. I don't have a well, lot of hope. And for as it. you can imagine, trade groups for the plastic industry were quick to of, condemn the legislation as a one-two punch against American workers. <laughs> always, 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 jobs, jobs, jobs. Uh, but, but proponents of the legislation responded to the industry by saying, "Quote: We're really excited that there's a federal bill out there that's addressing these three issues: plastic pollution, the climate crisis, and environmental justice in tandem." It takes aim at all those issues head on, doing what we know we need to do, which is to make less plastic 
in the first place. There you go. It's all, all about right. going to the source of these problems. Sure. It's all about going to the source. Prevention is the cure. Prevention is the cure, not just for human health issues, but for, but for issues that are impacting our planet. It's all about preventing it. Good advice. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Better living through chemistry is a phrase that has woven its way into American culture. Originally conceived by the advertising department of DuPont Chemical Company back in the late 40s, the phrase was meant to instill a positive opinion about the role of business in society. And no doubt, modern chemistry has produced some amazing scientific breakthroughs that make much of our modern world possible. Chemicals operate below the surface of most products, making them soft, fragrant, waterproof, fire-resistant, slippery, shatterproof, or whatever characteristic is desired. Plastic, for instance, is nothing more than a mixture of fossil fuels and chemicals. But as more and more chemicals have made their way to the marketplace, questions have arisen about the safety of those chemicals. In 1962, Rachel Carson had published Silent Spring, her attack on the indiscriminate use of pesticides. Public concern about air and water pollution increased in the wake of several environmental disasters, and by 1970, President Richard Nixon asked Congress to create a special agency to set and enforce standards for air and water quality and for individual chemical pollutants. Not everyone was happy with this arrangement, of course. Industry was used to having its way, and the idea that big, expensive corporate projects could be stymied by a government agency based on the possible impact of the environment was, well, unacceptable. I started working at EPA in 1990, and I was doing wetlands permitting for New England, and eventually I took over the wetlands enforcement program. But uh, Maine was my state that I was in charge of, and there was a proposal to take the largest uninhabited island off the coast of Maine, an island called Sears Island, um, and turn it into a cargo port. That's Kiowa Bennett, a former EPA employee who ran afoul of some of the bigwigs in Maine who were not happy that a federal agency in Washington might interfere with their project. The state of Maine Department of Transportation wanted to put this cargo port there, and the island is really spectacular with incredible wetland resources, both coastal and freshwater. And it just simply did not comply with the regulations under the Clean Water Act. And I told the regional administrator of EPA at the time that um, a permit could not issue for this project because it would cause or contribute to significant degradation of waters of the U.S., which is the legal standard. And uh, the regional administrator said to me, I don't care, figure out a way to make this permit issue. And I refused. And he said to me, if you don't, I will take you off the case and put someone else on it who will. What to do? Kiowa Bennett was not about to back down. After all, she came to work at the EPA to protect the environment, not to protect special interests. You don't go to EPA to make a fortune or to get famous. You go to EPA because you care about the environment. I found Peer and called them up and they represented me. We filed a complaint with the Department of Labor and immediately EPA capitulated, um, gave me my job back in charge of that permit. The permit was eventually denied. The island is still undeveloped. It's still, still a fight. They're still trying to put something there, but it's still undeveloped. 
and that's how I got to know PEER. PEER, P-E-E-R, stands for Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility. It's a national, nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that supports and defends local, state, and federal employees who shine the light on improper or illegal government actions. Its services are free to whistleblowers. Through PEER, public employees can choose to work as anonymous activists so that public agencies must confront the message rather than the messenger. Kyla Bennett stayed at the agency for a few more years before leaving EPA and joining PEER, where she now serves as PEER's Director of Science Policy. Meanwhile, problems at the EPA continue unabated. It's actually horrifying to me. Someone once asked me, does EPA need to get raised and then rebuilt? And I, I don't think so. I think it, it's kind of like an old house that needs to be gutted and then built back from the inside. The structure is right. The laws are actually quite powerful if they're implemented correctly. Mm -hmm. The problem is the culture has become one of, you know, trying to assist industry rather than protect human health and the environment. At first, EPA wielded its power with precision and effectiveness, using the law to stop projects like the cargo port at Sears Island in Maine that would have a serious impact on the environment. But it didn't take long for industry to figure out how to influence those kinds of decisions and make the agency more favorable to business interests. I think when it first started, people were like, oh, big bad EPA, and they were doing the right thing. And gradually, industry learned how to infiltrate the agency. There's, there's an incredible revolving door. In the Office of Chemical Safety and Pollution Prevention, there was one manager who's gone back and forth between EPA and the very industries that he regulated four times now. Just keeps going back and forth. And that should not be happening. We should not be allowing that. They've just lost sight of what's important and the bean counting is driving their decision-making. Actually, their performance is evaluated based on the number of chemicals they get out on market, not on the number of chemicals that they're preventing from getting out on market and harming people. So using Washington's revolving door to infiltrate the agency with personnel was one successful strategy used by industry to exert influence on EPA decisions. But it certainly wasn't the only strategy. Sometimes it was even more blatant. These whistleblowers are saying prior to COVID, when you walked into EPA's lobby, there are industry people there who run up to you and say, oh, what a pretty dress you have on today, you know, and, and taking them on crop tours and um, giving them barbecues and trying to, you know, win them over. And it works. According to Kyla Bennett, managers at EPA are in close, almost daily contact with managers at the companies they're supposed to regulate, while the public is shut out from the decision-making process, which is opaque at best. Even the scientists at EPA who work under the direction of those managers may not be fully informed about the chemicals they are supposed to be regulating. Unfortunately, there's not as much science out there for these new chemicals as you would think. Sometimes these risk assessors are giving nothing more than the name of the chemical and one abstract of an industry-run study. That's the only information they're given. And they have to do a risk assessment on that chemical within 90 days. Remember, these are new chemicals, so they're not studied. Sometimes these are chemicals that are, have just been developed by these companies. A lot of them are confidential business information, so nobody has studied them or even knows anything about them. 
science should rule. I mean, everything EPA does should be based on science. It must be based on science and it must be based on the on on relevant science that's not industry based. So much of the science that EPA looks at is industry science and it's skewed. Against this backdrop of corporate influence within and over the agency, which is supposed to be protecting our air and water for the benefit of public health, a new class of chemicals has emerged. Well, not new really, but finally coming under more intense scrutiny. A class of chemicals you probably come in contact with every day. PFAS is an acronym for per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. It's a mouthful. The chemistry is very, very complicated and it's a huge class of chemical compounds. Couple things that these compounds all have in common. First of all, they all have a carbon fluorine backbone. This is carbon atom with a fluorine atom that are bonded together. This is one of the most strong chemical bonds known to humans, almost impossible to break, which is why they are very persistent and nicknamed forever chemicals. They can take decades to hundreds of years to break down naturally. They were developed in the 1940s. They are used as water and stain repellents and surfactants. They are found in almost everybody's blood serum and it is a national crisis. You can find PFAS even today in carpets, carpet cleaning products, food packaging, especially things like microwave popcorn bags or fast food wrappers, on upholstered furniture, in cosmetics, in your outdoor gear like your sails for sailboats, tents, backpacks, in your rain gear, in adhesives and sealants, protective coatings that you spray to waterproof your shoes, for example, all that nonstick cookware, baby car seats, which is extremely concerning, firefighting foam, and even firefighting turnout gear. So PFAS are ubiquitous in our environment. With virtually no regulation and no studies of their potential impact on human health, they've been incorporated into millions of products that people use every day. Only now, after they've been around for more than 70 years, is the EPA finally beginning to look at PFAS and how these chemicals may be impacting human health. We're still learning about all the awful things that PFAS can do to humans and to other wildlife as well. Increased cholesterol, increased risk of diabetes. They are hormone disruptors. They can reduce fetal growth, risk of childhood obesity, developmental issues, increase in thyroid disease, increase in preeclampsia in pregnant women, which is very concerning, and increased cancer risk, particularly testicular cancer and kidney cancer. And now we're starting to see some links with brain cancer. Very, very scary. So is the EPA ready to shake off the pernicious influence of the chemical industry and institute some strong protections for the public against this entire class of chemicals that will impact public health for generations? Kyla Bennett isn't hopeful. EPA is not going to save us anytime soon. EPA released its PFAS strategic roadmap under the Biden administration at the end of 2021. It was eerily similar to the PFAS action plan that came out under the Trump administration in 2019. 
In the Biden plan, there was nothing of substance except for a promise to regulate two PFAS, PFOA and PFOS, in drinking water. The plan relies very heavily on voluntary stewardship and uses what we call the whack-a-mole approach to regulation, regulating one chemical at a time. Now remember, there are thousands. If we keep regulating one at a time, we're talking about thousands of years before we can regulate all of them. So how many PFAS are currently being regulated by EPA? None. A common misconception that EPA is regulating them, they are about to, but they haven't yet. We must use the precautionary principle. And for those of you who don't know what that means, it simply means that we need to adopt precautionary measures when scientific evidence about an environmental or human health hazard is uncertain and the stakes are high. These are carcinogens. The stakes are very high. PFAS in drinking water is only part of the problem. Yes, we're drinking it, but we're bathing in it, in our bathtubs and our showers, we're wearing it in our clothes, we're inhaling it from dust, and we're eating it in our food. We must minimize the risk and turn off the tap. And that's the only way that we're going to save ourselves and the environment. PFAS are here, they're everywhere, and they're going to be around for generations. While we look for ways for humans to be protected from some of the worst consequences of exposure to PFAS, we need to take action right now to keep more PFAS from entering our environment. It's kind of like climate change. If we stopped burning things, if we stopped burning fossil fuels tomorrow, the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it'll take centuries before it starts going down. It just won't increase anymore, which is what we need to do. Same thing with PFAS. If we stop using PFAS right now, we're still going to have all that contamination in our, in our environment, and it'll take decades, hundreds of years before it starts going down. But we need to take that first step because the more we put into the environment, the longer it's going to last and the more it, it's going to impact us. If I were leader of the free world, corporations would not be people. I would get corporate money out of government, full stop. Congress people should not be allowed to be trading stock. And we can't afford to have these industry have free access to our government agencies. These whistleblowers that Pure has that have come forward from EPA, they are heroes as far as I'm concerned. They're, they're courageous. They are afraid for the American public because of what they see. And the scariest thing of all is that so many of these chemicals are cloaked under confidential business information. Even when I work with these employees, I don't know what chemicals we're talking about because it's considered confidential business information and no one's allowed to know except for a handful of people at the EPA. We don't know what they are. And so my clients are telling me how very toxic some of these things are. One drop on your skin if you're pregnant will lead to developmental problems with your fetus. You know, awful, awful chemicals. And the American public simply doesn't know. These clients can't sleep at night knowing that these chemicals are going out on the market. I can't sleep at night because of what they've told me. We need to fix this because it's frightening for everybody.
Kiowa Bennett, former EPA analyst and now Director of Science Policy at PEER, Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility. You can learn more about PEER's work at PEER.org. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street News. If you missed any part of today's show, you can always catch it again at GreenStreetNews.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of the show. Thanks for listening. Before we go, I wanted to put in a pitch for Grassroots Environmental Education, the science-based nonprofit organization that Patty and I started more than 20 years ago. Over those years, we've had some remarkable success in educating consumers and policymakers about environmental exposures and how they can impact our lives. From fracking to pesticides to wireless radiation to plastic pollution, we take on difficult issues and find solutions that work for everyone. Green Street News is just one of many programs and projects we are involved in. You can learn more about our work at our website, www.grassrootsinfo.org. All of this is made possible by donations from individuals like you, people who care about our children, each other, and the future of our planet. We're very grateful to all of our financial supporters, and we hope that listeners to Green Street News will consider making an end-of-year gift to Grassroots. Thank you, and happy holidays to all.